So I wonder, do you believe that this morning? That all other ground is sinking sand. If you're a believer, you do believe that in the inner man, as Paul will say. You delight in the law of God in your inner being. Paul talks about that in Romans 7. That's the mark of a Christian, that we do believe that to be true. We have believed that, and we do now. But the sad thing is that oftentimes our lives very much look like we believe in the sinking sand. We put our trust there. We put our confidence there, our hope there. And so I pray this morning as we, as we sing these words that we are reminded that only Christ is a rock upon which we can build our lives. And apart from Him, everything else just sinks and is done away with. It's a wasted life. A wasted life can be a Christian life that really just sort of putters along and does not live in light of the rock or really build on the rock. So we pray that these words that we sing, hopefully with our hearts and our minds, will become more and more a part of who we are as God's people. If you can remember back, to our very first sermon on Abraham. We've been in Genesis for a while now, and if you can remember back to our first sermon on Abraham, uh, Genesis, like many books, is kind of broken up into these very distinct chunks. Chapter 12, verse, uh, chapter 12 all the way up to chapter 25 is a distinct chunk, and that chunk or that unit of Genesis is dealing with Abraham. And we're introduced to him at the end of chapter 11, but it's really in chapter 12 where he comes on onto the scene. And if you remember back, that very first sermon that I preached on Genesis 12, or really on this Abraham unit, was entitled, The Faithful God and the Father of Faith. And if you have been following these sermons through Genesis, as we've gone from chapter 12 now all the way up to chapter 18 you will see that these two themes have been repeated time and time again. The faithful God and the father of faith. God's faithfulness and Abraham's obedient faith. Although we have seen Abraham stumble, we've seen that that Abraham's faith is not perfect. It is perfect in that its object is perfect. It's perfect in that he does truly believe in God. But we've seen that in his humanity, in his, in, even in the flesh, that, that Abraham sort of is, he stumbles along at times. He falters, he, he falls, he's feeble. And so, yes, we have seen Abraham's obedient faith, but we've also seen the feebleness of it, the humanity of it. And I think that's something that we've been able to relate to very much. I know in our gospel community group, we've talked about that, and I'm sure you have in yours, that we've been able to see in Abraham's obedient faith and feebleness, we've been able to see ourselves, much like a mirror. And last week, we looked at Genesis chapter 17, and once again, we saw these two themes, God's faithfulness and Abraham's obedience. The chapter begins, chapter 17 from last week, begins with the Lord declaring himself to be El Shaddai, God Almighty. And then after he declares himself to be God Almighty, he goes on to heap up, once again, as we had in chapter 12, he goes on to heap up all of these promises to, or upon Abraham. And not only does he heap up these promises, but he also heaps up these reassurances, changing names, giving a sign and seal of the covenant. 
So very much at the beginning of chapter 17 from last week, we are reminded of this theme, which we've encountered constantly, and that is God's faithfulness. And then when we fast forward to the end of the chapter, we see Abraham's complete and immediate obedience. He circumcised himself at at his age, about 100. He circumcised himself, his 13-year-old son, and he circumcised every, every male in his household. And it says, that very day as God had said to him. So at the beginning of the chapter, we're reintroduced to God's faithfulness. And all the way through toward the end of the chapter, we are reintroduced to Abraham's obedient faith. He does that very day what God told him to do. And, and this is a key feature of the people of God. We saw this back with Noah. It's very interesting when we get to chapter 6 and the world is so corrupt, but Noah found favor in God's eyes and then repeated constantly throughout those chapters in the Noah and the flood narrative is this uh, refrain, and he did as the Lord commanded him. And he did as the Lord commanded him. That is, again, what we see here with this man, Abraham. In the line of Noah through Shem, the same kind of obedient faith. And the reason that these two themes, God's faithfulness and Abraham's obedient faith, are so intertwined is that this is what it looks like to be in covenant relationship with God. And this is something I want you to to see before we get going this morning. When we read this narrative of God and Abraham and the relationship between the two, this covenant relationship between God and Abram or Abraham, we are seeing the outworking of the Christian life in the life of Abraham. That's what's amazing about it. I've said many times that Abraham is the prototypical believer. He's the quintessential person of faith, the quintessential person of God. And in that, we are seeing the outworking of the Christian life in the outworking of the life of Abraham. To experience his faithfulness, And to be filled with faith-fueled obedience. So let me say this to you just as a matter of examination. A matter of of self-examination. Throughout the scriptures we are called to examine ourselves to make sure that we are in the faith. We are called to make our calling. We are told to make our calling and election sure. And so throughout the scriptures I think we get these kind of little tests. These little moments where we hit the pause button. And we ask ourselves the question, am I in the faith? Do I belong to God? Am I a believer? And to begin to really, and not a kind of unhealthy introspection that's just always open to Satan's attack that you doubt your salvation and don't know where you stand with the Lord. But I'm talking about a a healthy realization and examination of where you are with God. And I think here, with these two themes, God's faithfulness and our faith-fueled obedience, we have a bit of a test for ourselves. And what I mean by that is these are the things that we should see in our lives as Christians. So let me ask you this. Do you live on the whole, on the whole, and at the core? On the whole, and at the very center of who you are, do you live, as it were, in the shadow of the eyes of a faithful God? In other words, are you conscious in your life, in the outworking of your life, that there is a heavenly father who oversees you, who knows you, cares for you, and is faithful to you? 
Because that is what it looks like to be a Christian. It is to live in the air of this faithfulness, to breathe the air of God's faithfulness constantly as we go through our daily lives. And to have a life that is characterized by obedience. Now let me say this. That doesn't mean we don't sin. It doesn't mean that we don't go through periods of dryness. It doesn't mean that we don't stumble, even like David in the Bible. But what it does mean is that the life of a Christian should be characterized by obedience to God's word, obedience to God, which means that if you live how you please, if you do whatever you would like, if you live as it, as it pleases your own eyes, as those in the time of the judges lived, then that is an indication that you do not know the Lord. A Christian is a person who obeys God because he or she trusts that he is faithful. So do you see how these two things come together? God's faithfulness, our obedience. We see it in Abraham. We look in the mirror and we should see it in our own hearts if we're Christians. And this close relationship between the Lord and Abraham is probably seen most clearly when the Lord is said to actually appear to him. We get these, um, these amazing scenes where, where the Lord appears to Abraham. I mean, it's incredible. We read this, and, and it does say in other times that the, the word of the Lord came to him, or he had a, a dream, he was asleep, or he saw a vision, and so forth. We get various, various kinds of language to describe God's interactions with Abraham, but, but on a few occasions, we get this very explicit language that the Lord appeared to Abraham. So in chapter 12, verse 7, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, your offspring, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then you fast forward all the way to chapter 17, verse 1, and we read when Abram was 99 years old, this is last week, the Lord, what? Appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. And and in case you didn't think this was incredible enough or you forgot about it, a little bit later in the chapter, in verse 22, it says, when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. So here we see the closeness of the relationship between God and Abraham, uh, most explicit and clearest for us in these appearances of God to Abraham. And that is exactly what we find again today as we come to chapter 18. So if you're not already there, if you would go there in your Bibles, Genesis chapter 18. We have an audio Bible there. Genesis chapter 18. And the title for the sermon this morning as we, as we uh, jump into this chapter is Abraham's Three Visitors, part one. So this is a long chapter, and I thought about taking on the whole chapter in one sermon, but it became increasingly clear to me that that really wasn't going to be a good idea. And so what I'll do is verses 1 to 15 will be part one, and then 16 all the way to the end will be part two. This entire, this entire chapter really has to be treated as a unit because of these three visitors. We have them coming to Abraham at the beginning of the chapter, and then at the end of the chapter, we have 
uh, them sort of moving on, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But Abraham's three visitors. So if you will, please stand with me. We do this out of reverence for God's holy word. Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 to 15. This is the word of the Lord, perfect and profitable for God's people. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah? Your wife. And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. And Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. You can go ahead and be seated. Really neat little story here with such amazing things to teach us about the Lord. Just such a delight to be able to get into these these passages. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we are gathered here under His Word. Remember, we sit under God's Word. And when we sit under it in utter humility, God speaks to us and He changes us. So let's pray this morning for humility. As we come to God's word and that we will be open, that our hearts will be malleable in God's hand. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are God Almighty. You are the I Am, the creator of heaven and earth. You have revealed yourself generally in nature and specifically through your precious word. And what a blessing, God, what a blessing we have this morning that we are, we are encountering your glory through your word. 
God, what a gift that we have before us. And we pray that your name would be hallowed in each of our hearts and that your kingdom would come as we are conformed into the image of your Son, that your will would be done done among us this morning in general ways that we as your people would be your people increasingly, that we would functionally and practically manifest your excellence, your character, and how we live and think and speak, how we feel, what we want out of life, And specifically, Father, that your will would be done in each of us. We recognize that you are working with each of us as you did Abraham. And that each of our lives is like a little Genesis chapter 12 to 25. Each of our lives is is the journey, the pilgrimage. As Hebrews 11 describes it, the pilgrimage of, of a faithful one because of your grace. And so, God, we are just so thankful that your will has been done in our lives as you have given us the obedience of faith, that you have transformed our hearts, that we are no longer enslaved to sin, that we no longer have guilt in your eyes, but have been washed, have been renewed, have been made new in Jesus. And so, God, we recognize that your will has been done, but we pray that each moment, each day, that we would do your will and how we go about family life and work life and how we leisure and what we do with our time, everything would come under your lordship and that we would refer all things to you, serving you in all that we do. Pray that your will would be done in this service. And Father, we pray that you would provide what we need today. We know that we're all in different places and so we ask that you would provide our daily bread. You would provide the feeding that we need from your word, and you'd meet us at our point of need, each of us, God, today, as we are struggling through different things, we're worrying about different things, we are tempted in different ways, that you would meet us where we are, and you would protect us from sin, that you would lead us away from temptation, and that you would guard us now from the devil. We pray that you'd protect the hearts and minds of our children as they're learning this morning from distraction, and that the seed would not fall on the path or the rocky ground or the thorns, but that it would fall on good soil. We pray that it would spring up a hundredfold, God, in each of their little lives, that you would be glorified through them and us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, I want us to focus on two things as we try to unpack the first part of this chapter. As we look at these, these 15 verses, I want us to Look at just two simple things. The first is the meal, and the second is the message. I think that's really what we need to see most clearly as we try to deal with what probably is a fairly perplexing passage. Uh, Even those of us who have grown accustomed through uh, sitting through Genesis to God appearing are probably a little bit uh, scratching our heads as we come to a passage like this with these three. Visitors. So first, let's look at the meal. And in order to do this, I want to pull the spotlight back over verses 1 to 8. So I want to just read through those again quickly so we have those fresh in our minds as we go into those verses. So uh, verses 1 to 8, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree 
while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarai and said, quick, or Sarah, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. A flurry of activity there, incredible uh, scene. So there is Abraham sitting at the door to his tent in the heat of the afternoon, enjoying a little midday rest time or siesta. He's just taking a break. It's hot. He's sitting there relaxing. And all of a sudden, he sees three men nearby. We don't get any information about how they appeared or their approach. He just sees them. He notices them suddenly. And their sudden appearance probably alerts him to the fact that there is something unique or supernatural about these men. There's just kind of an air about this that is, uh, I think, gives Abraham probably the impression that this is of a unique nature. These aren't just three guys from a nearby town who have happened to stumble up on the complex of Abraham's tents. Many tents. He's got a lot of possessions at this point, a lot of people in his household who would have recently been circumcised, by the way. And he's got a, a, whole, whole, a whole host of, of cattle and everything else right there in this complex. And he, he sees these three men. He doesn't scratch his head and try to figure out what's going on. He immediately reacts by rushing to meet them, paying them the utmost respect, and then asking them to partake of his hospitality. Now, people disagree, commentators disagree about the extent to which Abraham initially suspected or knew who these men were. Uh, Some will say that he had no idea initially who they were. Uh, Maybe, I, I think probably it's most reasonable to think that he probably suspects but is not sure exactly what's going on here. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum are people who would say that he knows precisely who this is. But either way, as the narrative progresses, it becomes clear to him that one of them is the Lord. This becomes very clear as we go through chapter 18. One of them is the Lord. So what about the other two? Well, the other two head towards Sodom at the end of chapter 18 and are reintroduced as angels in chapter 19, verse 1. So when you get to the next chapter, it says, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. And so you go into chapter 18 with three men, so it seems, and then Abraham is engaging with them. And then towards the end of the chapter, he's talking with one who is identified by the text as the Lord. And then two others move on. The men move on. And then at the beginning of chapter 19, they reappear. And it's two of them. They're called angels. And they're in Sodom. And they're there to destroy it. So here we have an appearance of the Lord in the form of a man accompanied by two angels. It really is an incredible A little story within the Old Testament, even given what we've seen so far. So what do we do with this? Well, this appearing of God in the Old Testament is what theologians call, very simply, a theophany. It just really means an appearance of God. A theophany. One theologian and scholar named Vern Poitras, you may have heard of him, 
I want you to hear the way he describes this, because I think this is so fitting for helping us understand why. Why does God come to his people in this kind of way that we're seeing here in Genesis 18? Why does he choose to do it in this way? Now, sometimes when we open up the Bible, we're really not able to answer the why question. And, And sometimes God doesn't give us any indication as to why. But often we are able to probe a little and understand why. Last week we probed a little into the practice of circumcision, asking the question, why? Why is it that God chose circumcision to be a sign and seal of the covenant that he had with his people? And I think here we can ask the same question. Why does God appear in this way to his people? So let me read you this explanation from Vern Poitras. This is what he says. Theophanies in the Old Testament anticipate and foreshadow the permanent coming of God into creation in the incarnation of the Son. We, we just looked at that over Christmas, over Advent with John chapter 1. He goes on to say, in the incarnation, the Son of God takes to himself a human nature while remaining the divine son. The son is the permanent appearance of God among us. As Jesus says to Philip, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me, these are the words of Jesus in John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the father. So how can you say, show us the father? Those incredible words that Jesus says to Philip. And then Vern Poitras goes on to say this. The incarnation is a unique event in the whole history of the world. But it is foreshadowed by the earlier temporary appearances of God. All the earlier appearances show beforehand something about the work that God will accomplish when Christ appears in the flesh. Which means that when Christ, when God became man... In the person of Jesus Christ, to someone who had the eyes of faith. Jesus said, if you were doing the will of my Father, and you love the Father, you would embrace me. Right? Which means that when Jesus came on the scene, it's not as though the the faithful Jews had to entirely reorient, reorient their understanding of Judaism in order to embrace Christ. What Christ says is, those who are faithful to God, God as revealed in the Old Testament, embrace Christ readily. In the New Testament, they may not understand everything as we see with his disciples, but they embrace Christ. And part of the reason is because even the incarnation of God, even the transcendent, eternal, infinite God, stepping into space and time as a baby, becoming man, is pointed to and foreshadowed even in these human-like appearances of God in the Old Testament. That is what Vern Poitras is saying. So that to the faithful Jew in the first century who encounters Jesus, there should immediately be an understanding that the glory of God is found in the face of Jesus Christ. And of course, this is an unfolding reality for those who encounter Jesus. People like Nicodemus, it takes some time for him to really see and even... The disciples are slow to hear, slow to believe, and slow to see. But nonetheless, those who were faithful to God embraced his son. 
And this is the theophany. This is what we find, this theophany in chapter 18. This is another theophany. But what is the significance of this particular theophany that we get in chapter 18? And I think what we have here is that the real significance is the meal. The meal. Abraham, in the most hospitable way, provides water, rest, and a feast. He gives them bread, lots of bread, veal, yogurt, and milk. He lays this feast before these three men. He says at the beginning, let me give you a morsel of bread. He doesn't just give them a morsel of bread. He gives them this very elaborate feast. And on top of the feast, there is the speed and energy and diligence with with which Abraham pulls all of this together. So let me read a comment from a commentator named Kenneth Matthews. He describes it this way. The tornado of activity, hurried, quick, ran, reinforces the picture of Abraham as the extraordinary host. I mean, he's, he's about to have a heart attack here. He's rushing around so crazy. I mean, he's 100 years old. But he's running around. He's like, make this, make this, make that. And he's preparing it. And he brings it out to the men as a feast. And then he steps back. You know, like a waiter in a restaurant, he steps back. Of course, you don't want your waiter to just stand there. Sometimes they just kind of stand there and stand there and stand there. But he steps back as a way of saying, anything else you need, I want to be a perfect, hospitable host to you. And the result of all this diligence comes in verse 8. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And this is what it says. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. There's a medieval theologian named Thomas Aquinas. You may have heard of him. He's called the angelic doctor. Historically, why is he called the angelic doctor? Well, because in the Middle Ages, it became quite popular to, you know, these guys are just in universities, you know, like the University of Paris, old, old, the Sorbonne, old universities, medieval universities. And these guys are, are just sitting around and thinking about, Various things, speculations, and and even, you know, someone like Thomas Aquinas spent so many pages describing how angels work. So if you're interested in angels and you want to kind of chase that up, the history of interpretation of angels, there really is no better place to go than the angelic doctor to look at what Thomas Aquinas has to say about angels. And and he will say, of course, that angels don't really eat. Uh, we don't know, and, and, and as he goes beyond that, it becomes this uh, really just a lot of speculation. There's a lot, we don't understand. We don't know what is going on here. We don't know what happened to that food when it went into their mouths and down their esophaguses. I don't know if that's the plural of esophagus or not. But we don't know. We don't know what happened biologically or physically or in terms of the appearance. Th- those, are, those are speculations that we're not asked to go down. Those are roads that we're not meant to go down here. So we don't really understand the dynamics of what is going on here, but we are told very clearly they ate. There's a meal. And as the narrative unfolds, we learn why there are three men. The Lord will stay And speak with Abraham while the two angels go to destroy Sodom. But why the meal? What's the significance? I mean, God's appeared to Abraham before and said a lot of things. Now he appears as a man in the form of a man, very clearly, very explicitly. I mean, before we're just told he appeared. Now we're told three men and one of them is the Lord. 
What is going on here? And why the meal? I think the two are connected. What we have here is a covenantal meal. One commentator, Alan Ross, explains it this way. Covenants in the ancient world were often arranged with meals. To eat together was important for peaceful agreements in covenants and treaties. In other words, right after the covenant is made in chapter 17, the covenant is confirmed, the covenant is sealed. Now we have the Lord coming to Abraham in the form of a man with two angels in the form of of men, and they sit down and they eat at Abraham's tent. And we see meal and covenant coming together in the Last Supper, don't we? With Jesus. And then later in Revelation 3.20, and maybe you've wondered about this verse before. Revelation 3.20, Jesus says to the Laodiceans, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. And you may have just sort of mentally stopped right there. But it goes on to say something more. It says, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Isn't that interesting? At the Last Supper, we have Jesus eating with his disciples. In Revelation, we have Jesus saying, Look, turn from your sin, embrace me, and I will come in and dine with you. And then we are told in Revelation also that at the end of time, there's going to be uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb, that we will dine with Christ in the new heaven and new earth. And Jesus even says, People will come from east and west to recline with Abraham in the kingdom, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. One day, we will eat with Abraham, with Christ. And that will be an eternal reality. This is incredible. So what we have here is the intimate fellowship between God and Abraham. Abraham is depicted, as James describes him in chapter 2, verse 23, as a friend of God. Have you ever read that before in James 2? Abraham is a friend of God. By grace through faith, Abraham is at peace with God. The Lord sits with him and eats with him. We don't understand the dynamics of that pre-incarnation, but that's what we see. This is what we celebrate at the Lord's Supper. Think about that for a moment. You know, there's a lot of ways we can view the Lord's Supper. We think about John 6. Jesus says, you, you must eat my, my flesh and drink my blood or you have no life in me. And some people are so weirded out by that in that, in that passage because they're interpreting it in a, in a literalistic way and they don't understand what in the world he's saying and they leave. And Jesus says, these words are spirit that I speak to you. And he explains to them, we must embrace him in his sacrificial death on the cross as the Lamb of God, as the blood of the new covenant. We must embrace him if we are to be saved. But when we come to the Lord's Supper, there are many ways to see it. But one of the ways to see it is in light of Genesis chapter 18. This meal that we're going to have at the end of this service, as we have the Lord's Supper, we come up, we grab that little wafer and put that in the the juice. What are we doing? One thing that that is imaging, that I hope we'll meditate on this morning, is that we have communion with God through the blood of Christ. That we have peace with God. We, we meal with him. We eat with him. We commune with him as an anticipation of that communion which we'll have with him forever. We have peace with God and are assured of his promises. Reassured every time we take the Lord's Supper. It's a reminder of who we are in Christ.
But now we come to the explicit reason why the Lord has made this appearance. And that leads us to our second point, the message. So look at verses 9 to 15. Let me say this this briefly. What we've talked about so far with the meal is part of the reason why this, this happens. Part of the reason why the Lord comes to Abraham is to have this meal with him and to reiterate the covenant and to re reassure Abraham. But if we're reading the text, the clearest reason comes in these next verses. Why, we ask, did the Lord come to the tent of Abraham and sit with him and eat with him? Why, the text gives us the very clear answer in verses 9 to 15. So let's look there. Verses 9 to 15. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. She's kind of hiding out there. Verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. So aside from expressing their willingness to partake of Abraham's hospitality, this is the first speech of these three visitors They are interested in Sarah. They've said nothing. They've come. They're standing there. Abraham rushes out to meet them. And he's a flurry of words and activity. And they basically say, okay. And then they go and they sit down and Abraham gives them this food. And then they speak for the first time, really, letting their purpose, their intentions be made known. And to state it simply, they are interested in Sarah. The last time Sarah played an active role in the narrative was back in chapter 16. Do you remember that? The whole Hagar incident? Sarah has not been uh, really a heroine so far. I mean, she has not been depicted all that well in the preceding chapters. You get in chapter 16, this incredible incident. We really don't get much about her, what's going on in her mind at all. But the, the one big story we get is in chapter 16, we see her independence, her worldliness, and a low view of God. She trusted God, but she was trying to bring his promises to fruition herself, relying on her own scheme. So what does she do? She has a maidservant. Abraham's been promised a descendant. She starts scratching her head, starts thinking, you know what? I've got an idea. I've got this Egyptian maidservant. There's Abraham. God's made promise to him. So I'm going to give. You know, people do this all over the world. I remember this back in Mesopotamia. There were some other people I knew who were doing this. And I'm just going to give her to Abraham and kind of step back. And she's my property. And so Abraham will have a child or Abram, my husband, will have a child through her. And that child will, will really be my child and it'll all work out. Isn't this what God has been telling us all along is going to happen? So here we go. I can make this thing happen. That's what we found in chapter 16. And all the strife and all the turmoil and all that happened after that as a result. So not a very good portrait so far of Sarah, at least as we followed the narrative. But then in chapter 17, 
God makes some incredible promises to Abraham about Sarah. So let me read those to you again. This is from last week. What does God say to Abraham about Sarah? Verses 15 to 16. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Now, you have to follow through the promises of God from the beginning. God promised descendants for Abraham. Abraham's got in his mind, you know, uh, I've got this servant, Eleazar of Damascus. I'm going to kind of adopt him and he's going to be the one through whom I have descendants. God says, no, that's not my plan. That's not how it's going to work. I'm going to do this through your own body. Well, then Sarah comes up with a plan, and that's Hagar. And then God says, no, Sarah, or to Abraham, he says, I'm going to do this through Sarah's own body. Your body, her body, you, your wife, together will have a son. And now here, we get this stated explicitly in chapter 17. This is an incredible set of promises for one who is introduced in Genesis eleven thirty. The first time we're introduced to Sarah. Before we even get to the call of Abraham, this is what it says. A very little brief word about Sarah. Genesis eleven thirty. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child, period. And all that we're going to read from chapters 12 on is going to be God overcoming this reality. We entered into this entire narrative with this reality. She's barren. This is like a big label over her until this point in the story. But these promises in chapter 17 were given to who? To Abraham. Now it is time to deliver these promises to the ears and to the heart of Sarah. And that is the message that the Lord brings. Look at verse 10. This is the message. Verse 10, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, let me just stop there for a moment. God had already said that to Abraham. But then look at the next sentence, what it says. It tells us clearly why God says this. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. You know what that tells us? The Lord knew she was listening. That's why the Lord came. And he wanted to deliver the promise to her, for her ears and her heart. And the Lord knew also how she would respond. Verse 12. Look at that. Verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And it was this response from Sarah that opened the door for the Lord to expand his message by revealing two things. Two things that the Lord reveals at the end of this story. The first, well, let me just state it, and then I'll go through it a little bit. He knows all, and he can do all. He is omniscient, and he is omnipotent. That is what the Lord reveals about himself to the ears and to the heart of Sarah. Not just Abraham, 
who's been coming to Sarah and telling her all these amazing things. God, God showed me, showed me the stars and I saw the stars. He said, as many as the stars and the dust, as much as the dust. And the Lord said this, and this is why we've done this circumcision thing that you've been watching happen all around. This is, this is what's going on. Now the Lord wants this to be in Sarah's heart. And the Lord wants her to understand that he is omniscient and omnipotent. So let me look at each of those. First, his omniscience. It's very interesting when you look at verse 12. It says, Sarah laughed to herself. Sarah didn't just start cackling so that the, the, the three visitors out eating kind of look over their shoulder like, what in the world's that? What, your wife's over there laughing. That's not how it happened. Sarah laughed to herself. And then we get the Lord's response in verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Can you imagine Sarah's behind the tent and she laughs to herself and immediately she hears the person out there sitting with Abraham say, why did Sarah laugh? I bet all the blood just rushed right out of her face. And it says at the end that she was afraid. Of course she was afraid. Whoa, that was inside of me. That was in my mind. That was in my heart. Interesting, when the Lord Jesus comes, what often happens in the Gospels? And he knew what they were thinking in their hearts. And so he said, he knew what they were uh, deliberating among them. And he said, frequently we get Jesus in the New Testament. He knows what the Pharisees are thinking. He knows what they're feeling. He knows what's going on in here. And he just addresses it before it's made known to him. I think all that we read here in Genesis and elsewhere in the Old Testament is the backdrop for how we are to understand what we read about Jesus when we come to the New Testament and those gospel accounts. So we have, we have his omniscience, but now let's look at his omnipotence. Verse 14, look there with me. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Once again, I will return to you. I, the Lord, these other two guys are angels. I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. A son. I will return. It will be the Lord's doing. He doesn't just say about a year from now, she's going to have a baby. No, I will return this time and I will carry this thing through to the end. The promise I made, I'm going to see it through. I'm going to be there in that moment when this comes to fruition. Literally, is anything too marvelous? Is the Hebrew here. Is anything too marvelous for the Lord. This word often describes acts of salvation as in Psalm 9-1. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. Nothing is beyond his power. Nothing is beyond his doing. He made all matter and all invisible beings. Nothing is beyond his might. He is El Shaddai. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. I want to kind of finish on this idea as we finish up this morning. No matter where you are today, 
This is a timeless message for the people of God. This is a message for the people of God that we must hear every day ringing in our ears. And in fact, it's one of the reasons we should read the Bible every day because it's in our Bible intake that we are reminded every single day, nothing is impossible for me. As the Lord makes clear on every page of Scripture, we all need to hear this again today. As God will later remind his people in Luke 137, in the, in, the, in the face of Elizabeth's barrenness, for nothing will be impossible with God. The forerunner of the Christ came out of barrenness. John the Baptist's mother, barren. And we see here that the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise came out of barrenness. We have to see this. This is the God of the Bible. He works against human inability. He loves to show his glory in our lack of glory, in our frailty. Just as Moses at the burning bush was afraid to go and speak. Who made the mouth of man? God said, I did. Nothing is impossible for me, Moses. Trust in me. And I think this speaks to us in two, two ways. One, in the big picture. Nothing is impossible for the Lord. You ever think sometimes, will he really raise my body from the dead? I mean, like, really? I mean, we're just inundated with things going on here and now, thinking about, you know, what we, what we have to save up for or what we're having for lunch or, you know... Uh, when the next soccer game is. I mean, just these practical things that we're dealing with in life every day. And, 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 and sometimes I think we, we, we're confronted with these questions. I mean, am I really going to go to Christ when I die? Am I really going to be raised from the dead, from the dust of the earth one day? Is Christ really going to come back in the clouds of heaven in glory? Is there really going to be a new heaven and a new earth? I mean, is this really going to happen? For me, you walk through a cemetery and you look out and you say, are all these people now just bones and dust? Are they really going to be raised up one day? Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Just as certain as you have been made right with God through Christ and just as certain as you have the life of God in you, as you see his glory in the face of Christ, as you love him and treasure him and take hold of him in faith, just as certain as that, just as sure as that is a reality, so too will you be raised from the dead one day and glorified in God's presence. We will be glorified. Nothing is impossible for God on the big picture of our salvation. Let me read you another passage that I love to, to read. John 6, 39 to 40. I wonder how many people have read these words on their deathbed. You always wonder, right? What would be the words I'd want if I'm dying on my deathbed? What would I want in my heart as I'm about to breathe my last breath? Here's some good ones. John 6, 39 to 40. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone, everyone, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Nothing is impossible for God. He will see our salvation through to the end. He will raise us up on the last day. This is the will of God. This is why he came. Christ will lose none of those who belong to him. We can trust him in the big picture. That nothing is impossible. And we can trust him in the small things of life. That nothing is impossible. In the small struggles of life. In your fight against sin. Maybe, and you see this as a pastor, as an elder, maybe you think that this pattern of sin that you're in defines you. This is where you're always going to be, man. This is life. I'm just beat down. This is my life. And I'm just going to, this is where I'll be five years from now. It's where I'll be 10 years from now. I'm just always going to struggle with this. I'm just always going to be beat down by this, by this sin. Nothing is impossible with God. Dominion has been given from sin to Christ over your heart. There is no longer the dominion of sin for the believer. Christ can liberate you and already has. You must just access that power that he's already given you. You've already been liberated from sin. The power of sin in your life has been snapped and thrown away. You're not bound by this habit that's in your life. Nothing is impossible with God. Cry out to him today and trust him that he can take this out of your life. Nothing is impossible in your fight for your marriage. You think your marriage is just all dried up, nothing left. There's no way it could be better. There's no way that things could turn around. It's not the case in Christ. Just as sure, just as sure as God can make an elderly barren woman give birth to a child, God can heal your marriage in your home. In your prayers for your grown children, I know there are many in our church grieving over their lost 20-something, 30-something children, year-old children. Nothing is impossible with God. No matter how far they've gone, no matter how wicked they have become, no matter how much they have trampled on all that you taught them, nothing is impossible with God. Is anything too marvelous for the Lord? As the narrative comes to a close, we see a light rebuke from the Lord to Sarah. And we know that this was a transformative moment for her. How do we know that? Because when you come to the New Testament, this is the way the New Testament describes Sarah. Oh, she was a feeble-faithed woman. No, that's not what it says. Hebrews eleven eleven. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Whatever we are to think of Sarah up to this point, the way we need to leave our impression of Sarah is with this. She was a woman of faith. And just like all the other people in Hebrews 11 who by faith did whatever it lists, she too by faith took hold of these promises and saw them through to fruition. I imagine that Sarah had very different thoughts in her mind that night as she fell asleep than any previous night. 
God is gracious, and He meets us where we are. He met Sarah where she was, in her feebleness, and He meets us here today. And He says, wherever we are, come to me, trust me, lean on me, rely on my faithfulness. He comes to us where we're at, and then He pulls us up to where He is forever. Let's pray. Our Father, you are the eternal God. Your glory shines through the pages of Scripture. We see you. We see you in your power. And that all of that power is exercised in faithful kindness and love towards us. Us who are but dust who are sinful, each of us in this room has rebelled against you, the living God, and chosen to worship ourselves. And you have been merciful to us, God, through Christ. For the praise of your glorious grace from age to age. And God, we worship you today. And we pray that we would believe that you can do all things, that nothing is impossible with God, and that we will trust you and be content with where we are at right now, content in a kind of holy contentment, a kind of contentment that is not lazy or slothful or or that is resigning or fatalistic, but a kind of contentment, Father, that has absolute trust in you. And that persistently prays to you. And that works every day. That you might be glorified. And that the good might be done to others. God help us we pray in Jesus name. Amen.